Well, good morning, Chapel family. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Jonah and chapter 2. Last week we started this series. It's on the Old Testament prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. There are just three of those prophets who wrote books in our Bible. Those are the books of Jonah and Amos and Hosea. All three of these books of these prophets have intriguing stories to tell and also marvelous lessons for us. Last time we began in the book of Jonah in chapter 1, and and, uh, if there's any of the stories of the Old Testament prophets that you're familiar with, this is probably the one, but hopefully you'll learn a few things new and different and certainly uh, be challenged by the lessons here. Last time we saw Jonah, the prophet of God, who's stubborn and self-focused, and he refused to obey God's order to go to preach to the city of Nineveh. Instead, he booked fare on a ship heading the farthest he could in the opposite direction, heading west, headed for the Spanish port of Tarshish. God sent a tremendous storm. The ship was about to sink, fall apart and sink, and everyone on it would drown. But Jonah, at his instruction, uh, had the sailors throw him into the sea And instantly the sea grew calm. We noted as we finished a great contrast between Jonah and the sailors on the the ship. The, The pagan sailors were praying and yet Jonah all through chapter 1 never said a prayer. The sailors at the end of that chapter, they are in great fear of Yahweh God and having a worship service on the, on the deck of a ship and Jonah The prophet of God is remaining rebellious and as he plunges into the water, he is still ready to die rather than to repent and submit and follow God. What a contrast between those two. And I'm sure you all know what happens next. It's the last verse of chapter 1. And I'll just read it. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I heard once of an ardent atheist who had approached an older Christian lady and as they were talking, he said, he asked her, do you really believe that the Bible is true? And the lady said, well, yes, I do. And and he said, well, rather mockingly, he asked, well, then tell me, how did a whale swallow Jonah and keep him alive for three days. The lady said, well, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And so, sneeringly or smirkingly, the atheist said, well, what if he isn't there? She thought for a moment and then said, well, then I guess you can ask him. Today, we're going to quickly cover the next two chapters in the story. Chapter 2, chapter 3. They're both rather short, ten verses each. We're going to, there's really two events that take place in these two chapters. The first is Jonah's rescue. He is in the belly of the fish, but we're going to get his perspective on it here. And then chapter 3 talks about Nineveh's revival. And as we finish going through those, then we're going to look at three important lessons that God has for us through these two chapters. Jonah's rescue, chapter 2, verse 
1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. First thing we see is that Jonah prays. Finally, he didn't pray, as I mentioned, all the way through chapter 1. He didn't pray about things when God said, go to Nineveh. He didn't say, okay, God, let's have talk about this. Let's pray. He didn't pray about whether where he should go because he knew he was running from God. He didn't pray when he got on the ship. He didn't pray when they ran into the big storm and, and the ship is about to sink. He won't pray. He doesn't pray when the, when the sailors are about to cast him into the sea. He doesn't even pray when he hits the water. He doesn't pray until, as we see down in verse 7, he has sunk deep down and is about to drown. Now, this whole chapter 2 is actually a prayer, but it's not that prayer. That prayer was obviously rather short and to the point. He's about to pass out, and he prays something like this. Help! This prayer, he prayed later, as it says in verse 1, from the belly of the fish. He's inside the fish, and it's a great prayer. It is a beautiful prayer. In most of your Bibles, it is kind of formatted there like poetry, because it is poetry. Probably a song that he wrote. He's had time as he's in this fish for three days and three nights. He has time to think about his situation. He has time to compose and to work and phrase and rephrase and rephrase and put a tune to it and and sing it and make it a prayer and a song. Now, none of us know what it was really like for Jonah in the fish. But I'm pretty sure it's not a comfortable place like a lot of the, not like the cartoons, you know, most of them he's got a table and a chair and he's sitting there with a quill pen and writing, you know, and he's got a lamp or a fire. It's not like that. He's inside a fish. Okay, some people say a whale, but most likely not a whale, a fish, that's what it says. He doesn't have a lamp, he doesn't have a fire, he, he's doubtful he can stand, he probably has limited places he can move. It probably reeks of digestive fluids and of plants and dead fish. Uh, if any of you have ever been to the beach or, you know, mostly around, a, you know, a port or someplace where it's just kind of stagnant and stinks, it's probably like that except a whole lot worse. He probably is experiencing irritation, burning on his skin as the stomach acids eat on his flesh. And yet in the midst of all that, this actually is a prayer, it's a song, a psalm of thanksgiving rather than a plea for rescue. You'll see nowhere in here does he say, please Lord, get me out of the fish. Because what he recognizes is the fish is his rescue. His cry for help was as he was drowning and the fish is his deliverance, his rescue. So Jonah prays. Finally, Jonah sinks, verse 3 through 6, says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As Jonah is sinking into the water, he knows that this is punishment. God is punishing him for his rebellion. He says it is God who has cast him into the deep. He doesn't blame the sailors or anyone. He, he says it's God who's done this. It says it's God's waves, it's God's waters that are washing over him and enveloping him. He says it is God who has driven Jonah away from his sight. It's kind of ironic. Jonah in chapter 1 is all about running from God. He, it says he's trying to run away from God. That's what he tells the sailors he's doing. He, he's trying to get away from God. In chapter 2 here, he's saying, mission accomplished. <laughs> I was trying to get away from God, and now as I'm sinking here in the sea, I realize finally, oh, God has banished me from my sight. You know, you can't run from God, but uh, He can say, okay, and let you go. And uh, Jonah says, you know, now that I'm here, this isn't where I want to be. I finally got away from God and I realized it's frightening. It's terrifying. By the way, there's a lesson there. Sin never leads us where we hope and where we expect that it will. We always think when we when we do what we know is wrong, when we step into sin, we always think it's going to get us something that we want. It's going to get us somewhere we want to be. And the Scripture tells us that's never the case. The end of sin, the Bible says, is death. It is separation from God. And as Jonah reaches these last moments, he goes, I don't want to be here. The light gives way to the deep dark of the sea. He gets to the roots of the mountains, he says, to the bottom of the sea. Seaweed is wrapped around his head and he's, he's coming to the, he's on the bottom starting to close in over him. Finally, Jonah relents. His stubborn heart finally softens and he prays. His, his prayer in verse four is actually where he first mentions his prayer, he says that yet I will look again on your holy temple. As he's, as he's going down, the thought comes to him, yes, I will look again to your holy temple. That's a euphemism, a phrase that's saying, God, I'm going to look to you in prayer. Verse 7, it's, it's as his life was fainting away, a few seconds after the first thought, that he says, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. In God's holy temple in heaven, Jonah's prayer rises and, and God hears. Maybe you've been there at some point in your life. Maybe you're there today running from God. Sooner or later you run from God far enough, you ignore Him enough, and you just may end up at the place where Jonah is, where you realize, I don't want to be here. You can't ignore Him any longer and 
sometimes he gets to the point of pray or die. Jonah prays and asks God to save him. What gets in the way of that sometimes is our pride. We don't want to admit we're wrong. We don't want to admit our sin. I'll never forget the testimony of one of my my friends. Some of you know him. He said, I was sitting in a motel room. In one hand, I, I held a Bible, and in the other hand, I held a gun. He said, I knew the night would end only one of two ways. I had made such a mess of my life that I was either going to take my life or I was going to have to give my life to Jesus. And he really at that moment didn't know what he was going to do. Fortunately, before the night was over, he gave his life to Jesus. But there was an issue of pride. He had to get past the pride, be willing to say, I am a sinner. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jonah relents. And he learns a lesson. His lesson is in verses 8 and 9. He said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He ends his song with a great word of praise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's saying God God is the one who saves. There's a message there. Folks, turn to Him. God God saves. He's really thankful that He's alive. He's so thankful that he's alive and alive in the fish that he he promises. He says, God, I promise that that I'll fulfill the vows I made. Jonah had, what vows did he made? Well, Jonah was a prophet. He was a preacher. At some point in time, he'd said, yes, God, I'll serve you. I'll follow you. I'll do what you say. But, of course, he had broken those vows and he'd run away. And now Jonah's saying, okay, God, I give. I'll follow you. The real punchline of the psalm is verse 8. And I love the way, uh, I like it best in the NIV translation. It says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace which could be theirs. That is a powerful truth. And it's worthy to commit to memory. And it's not that long. You can do that. But it's one to commit to memory and think about every so often. Those who cling to worthless idols Forfeit the grace which could be theirs. See, the reality is, if we're not following God, then we are following idols. We're clinging to idols. God has grace for people, and it could be theirs, but they must let go of the worthless idols and turn to Him. And I wonder how often it is that people or how often it is that you and I miss out on the good, the blessings, the grace that God desires for us because we won't let go of the idols in our lives. And we won't follow Him with all of our heart, all of our life. Jonah turns to God and God delivers Verse 10. And by the way, this is the junior hire's favorite verse. For some reason, junior hires love vomit verses. 
verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The fish pukes Jonah. He ends up back on shore. Jonah is rescued. Chapter 3. Nineveh's revival. Verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. A couple of things to note. Jonah is recommissioned. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God graciously gives Jonah a second chance. A second opportunity. You know, sometimes you and I think that when God gives us a command, that that is a, oh no. When God or anybody gives us a job, it's, oh, a job. Do you know when God gives you a job, it's not a burden, it is a blessing. It's an opportunity to serve God. It's an opportunity to do something significant. And the very fact that God comes back to Jonah, and after Jonah has tried to run away, God has rescued Jonah, and God has this poor pathetic guy spit up on the beach. And there God says, alright Jonah, go to Nineveh. Preach my message. That is an act of grace from God. You see, it's really like when a kid, you'll you'll know this uh, if you've ever had kids or if you were a kid. If if it's like in your house, uh, or in my house I should say, the rule was, you know, you eat your veggies. And uh, if you get up from the table and run off without eating your veggies, there's a price to pay. And you know, if dad comes in the room and looks and there at the table is the plate and the veggies are there and the kid's off playing, there's the coming back. When you don't eat your veggie, the house rules are no playing and uh, no dessert. You see, it's not punishment that Dad brought him back. In this case, Dad brings him back. And this one time, you can sit at the table and eat your veggies. And you see, we got a special dessert today. And it's grace. If you eat your veggies, you get the dessert. That's so it is with Jonah here. What Jonah has no clue about is that in his disobedience and in his faithfulness, He almost misses out on the grace that God has planned for him. But God is gracious gracious and says, Jonah, come back to the table. i got a job for you. See, if you remember, Jonah is a prophet. And he's a prophet to the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And if you remember what we talked about in the northern kingdom of Israel, last week we noted that that this kingdom from the very beginning, from when there was that first split between north and south in Israel, this northern kingdom never had a king that followed God and the people never followed God. And with every king, new king that came along, with every passing year, every passing day, this kingdom dropped politically. This kingdom slid and dropped financially, economically, and most of all, this kingdom dropped spiritually. Every day they sunk lower and lower and lower. Not one of the prophets, not any of these three who wrote, not not Jonah, not 
not uh, Amos who will cover next and not Hosea, none of them will turn the heart of the nation back to God. None of the other prophets in Scripture who that didn't write, but who spoke to the northern kingdom, Elijah, Elisha, dozens of other unnamed prophets, none of them turned the course of the nation back to God. None of them ever got the really got the ear of the king or the ears of the people. None of them really got to see great fruit and, and great results from their, their preaching and their labors. But God has put before Jonah the opportunity to experience something that every preacher only dreams about. And Jonah almost missed it. Now, by the way, there's a truth coming up in this, and that is that God's blessings in our life don't always look like blessings. God's blessings in our lives sometimes look like problems. Sometimes they look like difficulties. Sometimes they look like suffering. Sometimes they look like impossible tasks. And it's only till we get to the other side that we discover that those things become blessings. And I know some of you can tell great stories of exactly that case. How God has taken the hardest time in your life and turned it into your greatest blessing. Well, quite frankly, this mission that God gives Jonah probably doesn't look like a blessing to him. Matter of fact, it probably looks like suicide. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah goes. Jonah is recommissioned and this time he obeys. Now, prophets, sometimes if you ever see a prophet in a cartoon, it's usually a guy wearing a, a placard, you know, one of those big wear, signs you wear. He's carrying a sign and he's got, you know, on robes and a beard and long hair and he, and he goes around and it says, you know, some of the end is near. And they're kind of a comical character. Everybody laughs and scoffs and mocks it. You know, these weirdo doomsday prophet dudes. And things really haven't changed. Because that's how the prophets of the Old Testament exactly were viewed most of the time by most of the people. It was a tough job. It wasn't a job you took to be popular. It was a job you took because God called you. But this one, this job was particularly daunting. He still had to travel several hundred miles to get to Nineveh. Now, I personally think that God is quite efficient. And Jonah took the ship to head as far away as possible. I think God used the fish to take, take Jonah as close as he could by, by water. Got a couple of hundred miles up north. Now, he just that cut a little bit of time off the journey. He just has to go across. But he still has to travel a couple of hundred miles at least to get to Nineveh. That's no small thing after you just got vomited up by a fish. But if that's not enough, three times in this book, you'll notice back in chapter 1, verse 1, when God first 
comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, he says, go preach against Nineveh, that great city. He says it here again in chapter 3, verse 1. Go preach to, go to Nineveh, that great city. And in verse 3, he calls it an exceedingly great city. Why does God make a big deal about that? Because Nineveh was a great city. Matter of fact, the only city on the planet that even came close to rivaling it, as far as archaeologists say, it was Babylon. Nineveh was greater. The main city, the main part of the city took up eight square miles. And that eight square miles of city was surrounded by walls that were 50 feet thick and roughly 100 feet tall. That's ten stories tall. Then there was another large outer wall. That outer wall not only surrounded the main city of Nineveh, but also surrounded a lot of the suburbs around Nineveh. It was a huge place. But it was intimidating not only because of its physical size of all the buildings, it was a large population. Uh, the archaeologists, the estimates are pretty broad, but they go from anywhere from 120,000 people to 600,000 people living in this city. It's a big place. But as we, if you remember last week, we mentioned not only was it a big place, but the Ninevites were a fierce and a brutal people who considered torture to be fun. It was sport. And they had made an art of it. Nineveh was located beside the junction of the Tigris River and the Kasur River near modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Actually, the, the old ruins are inside of the area of Mosul, Iraq. Today, Mosul is under the control of ISIS. You will hear it on the news quite a bit if you, if you listen carefully. That's where Nineveh was. Now I wonder, would it be a big deal if today, while we're sitting here, just right in front of you, a note drops out of heaven? It has your name on it. You open it up and it says, this is God. I am calling you to go preach to Mosul, Iraq. Enclosed as a ticket, your plane leaves this afternoon. How many of you would be really excited about going? I've always wanted to go to Mosul, Iraq. Maybe you have, but ISIS, yeah, not. I don't think so. Well, let me tell you, Jews were about as welcome in Nineveh as Jews or Christians are welcome in Mosul today. And if that's not enough, Jonah is supposed to go and here's the message. God says, go preach against it. So can you imagine, you know, parachuting into Mosul, because no plane will fly you there. And as you land, you start preaching against ISIS. How long are you going to last? You can see why Jonah might have been a little bit intimidated. And yet, despite all that, Jonah has already learned that running from God doesn't work out very well. So this time, he goes to Nineveh. And what happens next surprises 
most of us. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Who would expect that? These are the most wicked people on the planet, the most godless people on the planet, and they believe when God says, Forty days and you're toast. And what do they do? The people start calling out for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. People start hearing Jonah preach and they just start going... They start falling their faces. They Sackcloth. They start, you know, they go, start getting gunny sacks, potato sacks, and, and they change clothes, put those on and, and find ashes and smear it all over their faces... It's, the whole point is to be as uncomfortable and, and, as, and as unattractive as possible. The point is it's showing that we are utterly humiliated before God. And they pray. The word reached the king of Nineveh, verse 6. And he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It wasn't that the king issued a decree so everybody did it. If you read it carefully, everybody was already doing it. The king was the last guy in on the, in on the thing here. And he just, just to make sure he don't miss anybody. If there's anybody out there, repent now. Maybe God will spare us. Who would have expected that? There was a warning of judgment. This warning of judgment was not a popular message then and it's not a popular message now. Fire and brimstone and hell and damnation. Churches don't talk about that anymore, for the most part. Modern Christianity, we like to talk about stuff, you know, that, that, you know, makes people feel good. We like to talk about hope and we like to talk about, we like to talk about happiness. We like to talk about love and relationships and having your best life now. But people, the Bible is clear. There is a judgment coming. It is a reality. It is not the invention and the fantasy of some doomsday prophets. The reality is there is a judgment coming. The Scripture says that God will not forever put up with the evil of men. God will one day pour out His wrath on sin. It is not some antiquated concept just in the Old Testament. It is all through the Scripture and all you have to do is read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you see it's true. Romans, Paul wrote to the Romans chapter 1, he said, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the unrighteousness and godlessness of men. You have to read that carefully, but what he's saying is that God's wrath is in the process of being revealed. It hasn't hit yet. But it is coming. It's in the process, even though you don't see it right now, it's in the process because it is surely on its way. 
When he writes to the Colossians, he says this in Colossians chapter 3. He says it's on account of these things, and he's just listed a whole bunch of sins. He says it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. The warning of judgment that Nineveh had is actually still something that all people need to hear. There is a cost to the rebellion and the sinfulness of mankind. There is a judgment coming. Second thing that I note in this is that there's great power in God's Word. God tells Jonah to call out the message that I tell you. You know, sometimes I, I talk to, to folks and they, they're they really afraid to tell anybody about Jesus. They're afraid to talk about Christ. They're like, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, I'm not very good at talking. I, I'm, I'm just, you know. All you have to say is, he says here, Say what I tell you. Learn God's Word a little bit. You don't have to know a whole lot. Learn one verse, John 3.16. You see, the power of the message is not in the messenger. When we're faithful to speak God's Word, He will use it powerfully. You, you read the, the message here that Jonah preached. There's nothing spectacular about it. Get 40 days! And the Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, I, I'm sure he said more than that. But the point is, that's the gist of it. It wasn't a great eloquent thing with long reasoning and, okay, let's sit down and let's talk about God. And blah, 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 blah. he just went out there, preached whatever God said, short, sweet, he preached it, and the people just, boom! Not because Jonah was so eloquent, not because Jonah you know, was so intelligent, it was, he said what God said. And God worked through that. And by the way, this is the great miracle of the book. A lot of people get hung up on the, the whole thing with the fish, and there's the big miracle, and oh, I have a hard time believing this book because of, the, of the, the fish swallowing Jonah. That is a miracle, but you know, it's not the big miracle of the book. The big miracle of the book is that you've got the most awful people on the planet and the biggest city on the planet at that time, and this one washed up, messed up prophet comes and preaches what God says, and the whole entire place, from the lowest to the highest, everybody falls on their face in repentance before God and says, God, be merciful to us. Somewhere between 120,000 and 600,000 people become believers in Yahweh God in just a matter of a couple of days. That is a miracle. There has never been a revival before or since like that. And there's the wonder of God's grace. He spares the Ninevites. I had some people ask, and at times I've wondered, well, were these people really saved? You know, not just their, you know, Fire didn't come from heaven and destroy their city. Were they really saved? Are we going to see these folks in heaven? My answer is, yeah. Where do I get that? I didn't make it up. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation. This generation is a bunch of folks that Jesus is talking to all the proud, hypocritical religious leaders who are refusing to believe in Jesus. He says, in that day, the judgment, 
the men of Nineveh will rise up and they will condemn it. They will condemn these unbelieving Jews. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. He's saying they're going to be there at the last judgment, but not being judged. They are going to be there in judgment of the Jews who are there who have rejected Christ. That is the wonder of God's grace. He spares the most unlikely, the most unworthy, the most vile, the most violent people that were walking the planet. Some marvelous lessons here for us. And the first is this. Three big lessons. God's grace is big. The most unlikely folks and God saves them. And the message to that northern kingdom of Israel through the experience of Jonah, as Jonah ultimately comes back and this story is proclaimed to the folks of the northern kingdom, the lesson is this. If God's grace is so great that He will save the Ninevites in our vernacular, in our day and time, if He saved the ISIS army, it would be no less shocking if tomorrow a believer in Jesus Christ does drop in on Mosul and share the Gospel and tens of thousands of ISIS soldiers became believers in Jesus tomorrow. Would you be shocked? And the message is the same, would be the same at that as it was with this. God's grace is huge. And that's good news if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can't use the excuse, well, I'm too far gone. I've, I've done too much. It's too late. There's no hope for me. I'm too rotten of a person. No, you're not. You're no worse than a Ninevite. And if God will save a Ninevite, He will save a northern Israeli back in Jonah's time. The problem is, you see, they have to call on Him. And they're stuck in their pride like Jonah was. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior, there's good news here. It's good news that we need to be sharing. fact is, sometimes we think that our son or our daughter is too far gone. We think that our, our you know, Uncle Bob is too far gone. We think the drug dealer, the, the uh, gang member down the street, they're too far gone. Reality is there's no one who's too far gone from the grace of Christ. And we never know which least likely person will respond if we share the good news of Jesus. Secondly, not only is God's grace big, but, uh, well, by the way, here's the verse. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, and here's the message, that whoever believes. See, God's grace is big for whoever. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The second big lesson is don't cling to idols and miss God's grace. Go back to that verse that I 
pointed out earlier, most of us would join with Jonah and we would say, wow, that is an awesome verse. That is so true. Hear me well this morning. It's possible. It's possible to know truth. It's possible to affirm truth. Yeah, that is is right on, spot on. It's possible to affirm it. It's possible to even proclaim it. Yeah, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God which could be theirs. It's possible to, to teach it, to share it, and yet never really own it. Never really own the truth of that. Next week what we're going to see is that Jonah wrote it. He proclaims it here, but he doesn't get it. And I hope that's not you and not me. See, when you go back, and I hope you will, maybe this afternoon, go back and read chapter 2, which is Jonah's prayer. And you read it again and think back. And as you read it, think back as to where he was in chapter 1. And then read chapter 2 in his prayer. And what you get is Jonah is sinking in the water and he's realized at the last second, I'm alone and I don't want to die. God help me. And God helps him and he writes this marvelous psalm. I was dying. I was sinking. I was there. And, and, and I prayed to God and he rescued me. Salvation is from God. I'll fulfill the vows that I that I have made, and those who cling to worthless idols, man, they forfeit the grace of God that could be theirs, those poor people who don't follow God. And he never realizes, you see, if you look carefully at what's in that psalm, you'll notice what's not in the psalm. There is not one word of, oh God, what did I do? There is not one word of confession. There is not one word of sorrow. There is not one word of remorse. There is not one word of repentance. There is not one word saying, I was so rebellious. I was so wrong. There's not one word of God, forgive me. You see, Jonah didn't get it. And Sometimes, you see, what that means is, by the way, is that he is clinging to an idol. You see, we've all been there. Jonah relents, but he doesn't repent. Repentance is more than just obedience. It's more than just saying, okay, God, I'll go. Repentance requires a change of attitude and a change of heart. You see, we've been there as kids, as stubborn kids. You remember what it was? You know, you were there, and if if you don't remember and you're old enough to have kids or grandkids, then just observe them for a while. And you will see it acted out in front of you. Where your parents tell you to do something and you go, no! And then there's a bit of reasoning back and forth. Usually not reasoning, it's usually, you know, no I won't! Well, yes you will! No I won't! Yes you will! And here's why. You know, let me pull out the big paddle and you go, okay. <laughs> At some point in time, you realize as the kid, I will not win this one. That's where Jonah is. (laughs) I'm not going to win this one. And so, what do you do as a kid? Okay, I'll do it. Maybe there's more fighting and screaming and fussing and crying and everything in the middle. But at some point, you say, I will. But you notice, if you remember back or watch your kids or your grandkids, they will sometimes say, yes, but on the inside, they're going, "Eh, I'm doing it. 
but you're still wrong. And I'm still right. That, my friends, is idolatry. Idolatry is whenever we we follow God. Oh yes, God, I follow You. I worship, I adore You. You are my God. And we do that up until and as long as God's ideas and God's ways and God's plans agree with ours. As long as these things are going, we're good. We're buddies. God and me. And then when God says do this, and we go, uh, uh. You see, we part ways. When His ideas is different than ours, we defy Him. We try to run from Him and we try to ignore Him. Rather than honor God for who He is, we may try to reshape Him into something different and say, well, this God says this. He agrees with me, even though He clearly doesn't. But we try to fool ourselves and everybody else and hopefully fool God too. All of that is idolatry. It is worshiping ourselves or worshiping our image of God, our view of God, above who God is. That is clinging to worthless idols And my fear, brothers and sisters, is we do that sometimes as believers. And we end up missing the grace that God has desired for us. And so the second big lesson of this is don't cling to idols. Follow God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, even when and especially when His plans are different than your thoughts and your desires. Lastly, very quickly, don't wait. Don't wait. The Ninevites realized the reality of their peril and they acted basically immediately. They hear Jonah preaching. That same day, people are falling on their faces and going, God, save us! On the other hand, Jonah waited till the last second. Again, The book sets up a contrast. The first time it was between the sailors and Jonah. Now it's between Nineveh and Jonah. Jonah waits till the last second to repent. He finally repents just at that last second. Actually, he doesn't even repent, but he thinks he does. He relents. The Ninevites repent immediately. May I say, brothers and sisters, don't wait to trust God. Some people think, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'll just, you know... Do this for a little while because I want to have some fun. I know that I, that, that I should be following God, but I'd rather be doing these things over here. And, and so just for a little while, you know, till I'm 20 or 30 or 60, and, you know, then before I die, then I'm going to make sure I turn back and follow God because I certainly don't want to go to hell or I don't want to, you know. What foolishness. Because... None of us knows, number one, when Jesus is coming back, and none of us knows how long we will live. None of us is guaranteed another second. And that's why the Scripture says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 